We're going to be reading today's scripture reading from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Just wanted to give you a pathway. I know that I had shared that we are going to be going through the book of Galatians. Uh, That will happen not next Sunday, but we will begin the following Sunday. That will be the start of Galatians. So if you're wondering about that, we are going to be doing that, but we want to give a a couple of messages sort of to kick off our year. And then next week, uh, George Neiman's going to be preaching for us. And so excited for that. So one more week, and then we'll start Galatians the following week. I remember first moving to the Bay Area, and Sue and I were expecting our first child. And midway through the pregnancy, we received a phone call from the doctor. And we heard this dreaded news that there was something wrong with the baby and we needed to come in for an appointment. And when we went there, we were told by the doctor that the baby wasn't growing as expected, um, that she had to go through different stress tests and we had to wait and see what would happen. Little did we know, and back then they, uh, the doctors had not updated their charts, so uh, our baby just happened to be small. <laughs> So it really wasn't actually that big of a deal. But when you are expecting your first child, you've moved across the country, going to a brand new place where you didn't know anyone, to hear this was so sudden and so stark that both of us just burst out crying, actually. And what was so difficult about that time was the waiting. We just didn't know what would happen until the baby was born. And that waiting was so hard. It was so hard to be patient through that. In fact, that waiting felt, it felt like suffering. And in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, the word that we see James using for patience is a word that oftentimes in the Bible is linked to suffering that it's a long-suffering. If you've ever heard of that phrase describing the word patience, especially in the King James, it's because that nuance is there in James and in so much of the Bible, the fact that God is a long-suffering God, and we think of God as patient, but what we really need to do is think of him as long-suffering. And so for any of you I've ever waited where you're perhaps waiting for dreadful news or perhaps good news. There is a a suffering aspect to it. 
Because patience is so hard for so many of us because it reminds us that our lives are really ultimately not in our own hands. We have to wait on God. And in the midst of the waiting, there is this cloud of uncertainty. It's so difficult. And so James tells us then first, there is a a need for patience. And he speaks of what that need is. And then secondly, there's a, a model of patience that we can look to to actually bear up and to wait and to trust. So we'll first look at the need for our patience and then secondly, the model of this patience. James begins with the exhortation in verse seven, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. James knows it's very hard to wait, to be patient. And so he reminds us to hold our ground so that we do not become weak-kneed, waiting, especially in the midst of shifting and sometimes dire circumstances. The word therefore in verse 7 keys us in on the idea that there is something before this passage, verse 7, that tells us what we need to be patient about. And we see it in verses 1 through 6. We see that we have to be patient, especially when facing injustice. If we look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. The church in James's day was going through many challenges, tremendous injustices due to persecution and the government cracking down on the church and really isolating Christians as to be the, the scapegoats for all the problems and ills of the day. And perhaps there is a day to come that can actually be the same for us even today. In this church are a group of people who are trusting in Christ and because of their faith in Christ, so many of them were losing their jobs. They were being denied the very means by which they could provide for their families. So you can imagine how anxious, how tempting it was to be filled with worry and anxiety for all the people of the church. In fact, some of them had actually become destitute, poor, not because they were lazy or they were unskilled, but because they trusted in Christ and the government basically denied them of any means by which they were to live. And so James is essentially dealing with a church that has a group of people that have lost jobs, are really struggling financially, all because of their faith in Christ. And then there were also some who didn't lose their jobs, sometimes perhaps because they didn't uh, claim their allegiance to Christ, because they did go with what was popular what was deemed safe and comfortable. And so in this context, you can imagine some of the challenges that would be in the church when you have one group of people who denied Christ and, but yet are trying in some way to hold on to some semblance of their faith and then another who have completely trusted in the Lord but have lost everything. I don't know if you remember, but there was a few years ago where we were watching a video during International Day of the Persecuted Church it was by Voice of the Martyrs, and it was about a Pakistani Christian man. 
And the video started, and I know many of you can recall this because it was such a stark video of this man being lowering himself into raw sewage and then coming out of it and just being filled and covered with filth. And the story goes is that that man was saying, because he is a Christian, it was the only job opportunity he had because he was a Christian. And that's actually happening in our world. And so James is speaking to someone like that, or he, perhaps even worse, at least he had a job, as bad of a job it, it is. There are some who literally had no way to provide any means by which they could care for their families. That's called injustice. And when James says in verses one and two then, come now, you rich, basically people who are turning away from Christ or don't believe him at all, and they're doing really well, they're comfortable, everything's going well for them, they're secure financially, socially. And James says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming, they're coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. How does James answer this question? How is that true? You know, so he's speaking like I am to you. He's speaking to a group of people who are really struggling, and then there's wealthy people around who are so prosperous and who don't follow Christ at all. And so when James is saying, be patient, the church is asking, how can I be patient? This is so hard. How do I know this is true? And James's answer is, according to verse 7, the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That is to say that the coming of the Lord is sooner than we can imagine. I have this vivid memory of when I was young of looking at an I got an encyclopedia um, set. And I know for many of our kids, they're thinking, what is an encyclopedia? I only know Wikipedia. <laughs> Not, in, we had, you know, there used to be salesmen who would walk around and sell encyclopedias, like the Encyclopedia Britannica. How many of you had an encyclopedia in your house? Many of you. How many of you kids have an encyclopedia in your house? None of you. <laughs> well, I remember looking at this encyclopedia that we had, and there was this one section on it. It, it said, if you were born in this year, this, at, in, the year 2010, and I was probably, I don't know how old I was, 10, whatever, whatever how old I was, said in 2010, you would be 40 years old. And I thought to myself, as a young kid, I thought, 40, that is, I'm almost dead at 40. <laughs> I, it was just so far beyond me that I just couldn't imagine that. I'm 50 years old. 50. Way be, 10 years beyond what I thought was as good as dead. That just went like a blink of an eye from 8 to 40. And now from 40 to 50, that's even a, literally less than a blink. And then once we get to 80, Lord willing, we're gone. It's done. We're hearing about our parents. Um, for those of you who are close to my age, middle age, a lot of our parents are leaving this world. If they haven't, if you're hearing us pray for this person lost their mom, their dad, well, that's going to be so many of our stories. You're going to be hearing this almost nonstop. And it's not just because of COVID. No, it's because of 
the realities of life. And so James is telling us not to be comfortable with what we have in this moment right now. To choose to be comfortable is to fail to trust God. To place our hope in this world is to fail to trust God. And it's to fail to be patient because James's point is, all these rich people, where are they now? Really? So all the people that James is addressing who was wealthy, who was doing well, who had given everything to be successful, in 2020, where are all those wealthy, rich, powerful people? doesn't matter whether they owned all the money in the world or they were the most powerful people in the whole world. Where are they right now? You see, the coming of the Lord for us we tend to think of it from the perspective of the second advent of Christ, the, fu- the second coming of Christ. And to us, we don't know when that will be. That might be tomorrow or it could be 10,000 years from today. And we might say, well, that's not, that's not anywhere near close, so why, why should this be any hope for us? Well, the second coming of the Lord is not just his return. It's also our death. And so whether we think of it as Christ coming to the world and the world and the new heavens and the new earth beginning or us dying and who knows within a time space continuum of how God operates both in time and out of time if I die immediately it might be the second coming of the Lord I okay there's a lot to be thought about with that but the point of it is, is this is that when James says be patient the coming of the Lord Anyone who has lived life knows that time goes so fast. And so to place your hope and trust in fame, money, and power, and to choose this world's comforts over Christ is a terribly dangerous, foolhardy bet. I could have listed for you a thousand, like so many people, but you know, this past year in 2020, Kobe Bryant died, Sean Connery, Alex Trebek. There was a Iran's Quds Force leader who was over the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, a very powerful man, Qasem Soleimani. He was killed this past year. And so many other people, I had a list. I just didn't want to spend the whole time reading off this list of all these people. Some of these are young. Famous, wealthy, comfortable, and they're gone. So placing your hope in money, in who you know, it's a dangerous, dangerous journey. James knows what exactly allows us to be patient, even as we face grievous injustice, is that there is the knowledge of a judge and judgment. And when we really believe that God is the righteous, perfect judge, we can be freed of vengeance and spite and bitterness and regrets. John Chrysostom was an early church father. And he says that a patient man is one who, having the resources and opportunity to avenge himself, chooses to refrain from doing so. That's patience. When you actually have the means and the opportunity and the time to Seek and get revenge, and you choose not to because you trust someone who is an ultimate 
avenger. And that ultimate avenger is God himself. Paul says this very idea in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know why revenge is being overcome with evil? Because it's a failure to trust God as judge. It's actually not the fact that revenge in and of itself is evil. It's that you don't trust God with justice. You trust yourself. And again, think about what idolatry ultimately is, is, is the exalting and worship of the self and you determine what is God in your life. It could be a, a wood, piece of wood, a piece of metal, gold, silver, or it could be yourself. And vengeance is the same thing. I'm the one who's going to mete out perfect justice. I don't believe there is a God who will do that for me. And so when you trust God with your life, including injustice, and I know this is difficult, especially in our world, it just seems more unjust than ever. And it just keeps on happening. Regardless of what you believe, injustice seems to prevail. But know this, the coming of the Lord is true and near. Everyone who is powerful today or famous or wealthy, they will be gone in a flash, in a blink of an eye. And the only one who will stand is the Redeemer, the Lord. Though flesh might fail, he will stand upon the earth. And we can trust that. We can trust him. So that's why we do not seek vengeance. We trust his justice. Secondly, patience is also in waiting for fruits in verses 7 through 8. James says this, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. There's a few notes from this text that we have to consider. First, it's a precious fruit. And the question is, why is it so precious? Because for James, and in James's day, they didn't have corporate entity farming, where you have big farming agricultural conglomerates just creating all these crops for the, pur uh, for the purpose of bringing it to market and making huge amounts of profit. For James, just like in Africa, farming was all about subsistence. You survived by what you grew. And so it was precious because, not because there was a, a an, a value to it monetarily, it was precious because it allowed you to live, period. And when that happens, when you know what is ultimate, you, you are completely dependent on the weather. And you had to trust in someone else's timing, perfect timing. Actually, to have precious, good fruit requires perfect timing. And anyone who is try to grow vegetables or fruit, you know how timing is so essential when you plant the seed, when you harvest. All those things make a difference as to the quality of the fruit. Pick it too early and it's inedible and therefore it can be sour or bitter and it becomes something, it just, no matter how good it looks, it can taste terrible. 
So the timing of it matters. Notice also that there are early and late rains. And actually, George has helped me to understand this very pragmatically because he was telling me that in Africa, you have these early rains that come. The early rains, when they first come, they actually bring the, the harvest only to a certain point, the crops. It requires these late rains to sort of finish it so that the crops, because he says when the early rains come, the crops do come out, they look good, but they're absolutely inedible. And the late rains are the ones that actually sort of brings it all together and allows it to be actually edible for, for food. When we look at this passage, it's telling us that we have to trust that God is going to do the full work of bringing things to bear, to light. And it means completely dependent on him. And patience is trusting that timing. So many of us can understand this because you know how God calls us to wait on him. And patience cultivates our trust in God. That means that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers immediately. And if you've been praying for loved ones to trust in Christ, sometimes it takes decades for a person to trust in Christ. And you might ask, why? Lord, why does it take so long? I've been praying for years. Because God is doing not just a work in that person's life, but in yours. And he has a very specific reason. He wants us to grow as much as that other person. Sometimes when we say, Lord, would you present to me, give me this job opportunity. It's the perfect job. And it just doesn't work out. Rather than being upset with God, can we say, Lord, I know you have a perfect time. Sometimes we're having a hard time, young married couples having a hard time bearing children. And you wonder, why is this happening? Sometimes we have wayward children. There are so many things that God is calling us to be patient for, to trust his perfect timing, to believe that God's plan is better than yours, no matter how you think things should unfold. But we can't give up on him. To do so, to try to pick the fruit early and think, I'm going to do this. Forget it. I'm not waiting. You take a bite of that fruit and it's terrible. And it just is absolutely bitter to your soul. It can destroy you when you don't trust in him fully. Patience is also, according to James, in dealing with people. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers. We need a lot of patience for people, don't we? But notice, according to James, it's not against non-Christians. This is within the church because he's saying against one another, brothers, beloved, brothers and sisters. The reason we need patience for brothers and sisters, loved ones, is because they're sinners and I'm a sinner. And James is telling us that as long as we are together with other people, with God's people, we will always be tempted to grumble against people. It's hard not to do so. Grumbling occurs when we don't have patience with one another. And so in our hearts, in a sense, we've given up on that person. And you might say, no, but I haven't really given up. But you know that deep inside, 
there's one part of you that says, oh, they'll never change. There's no way they'll ever change. What we fail to see is that by saying that, we're actually saying also that I'm not going to change either. Because it really takes me to see someone in a different light. But when I've already determined that they're never going to change, that means that I've remained hardened in my own heart to think that God can't do the work of changing that person. So that little bit of impatience with God has already begun to shape and harden my heart, not just towards other people, but ultimately towards God. My view of him has gotten a little bit smaller. And each time, whether it's your spouse, boy, talk about a difficult person to love. It's the person whom you are closest to, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters. Then move outward into the church. So if, you're, if we're all having a hard time, and if we're honest with ourselves, in our deepest parts of our hearts, we have a little bit of a difficulty and think in our hearts that this person is not going to change. And that's our spouse, then our child, then our parents, and our siblings. It's a, it's a lot of impatience. And with that is grumbling. And grumbling has an external expression. Groaning. Oh. You know, grumbling also has, it, it's a silent, there's silent body language to grumbling. You know what else is a, a grumble? Eye rolls. You don't even have to say anything or make a sound. It's just your eyes going up or having a scrunched up face or <sighs> sighs, moaning. <sighs> That's a lot of language out there that just says the same thing. I'm frustrated with you. You're never going to change. God can't change you. I'm always right and you're wrong. It means we've forgotten who we are in Christ. All parents know what it's like to ask their kids, uh, to have their kids ask, can, can I help you? build this whatever. And in your mind, there's a part of you that says, sure. And the other part that says, you're going to make my life a lot more difficult by helping me. That's not help. That's, that's much. But of course, as parents, we want to say, yeah, you know, let's, because you're trying to teach and trying to mentor and guide without being ang angry and frustrated and irritated. But if you are irritable towards that person, if you lack patience, guess what happens to that child? They stop asking which in your mind you might think, that's exactly what I want. Is I don't want them to ask because they make things difficult for me. But by doing that, you've closed that child's heart to yourself so that not just if they ask, can I help you, you know, with that task, but they start deciding, I'm not going to communicate with you anymore. Do you see how a lack of patience actually really keeps us from being together with one another. That's one small example. Here's the thing is, if we forget the gospel, meaning I have been saved solely by grace, not because of any good deed or bad deed that I've done, but because God is so patient with me that despite my abject depravity, 
God is still patient with me. Despite my impatience towards others and towards God, God is still patient with me. He is long-suffering in that way. I like the way author Paul Miller puts it. In order for love to be formed in me in the present, I must put to death what is earthly in me. So I conquer impatience, not merely by repenting, but, and here's, here's the key, but by committing to love people who are slow, tiresome, or inefficient. I learn patience down low. Love always pulls me down into other people's lives. So the activity of reliving the dying of Jesus gives me humility. In fact, not just in principle, I live it. Wow. Brothers and sisters, my friends, can you commit to actually love people who are slow, tiresome, and inefficient? Our Western mindset is exactly the opposite. When someone is slow, tiresome, and inefficient, we want to cut them out of our lives because they take up too much of our time and our labors. But because we fail to do that, we never see Christ. We can't. We have to see that it is Christ who did something far infinitely more has he been patient with me as who is slow, tiresome, and inefficient. Patience requires us. The patience and long-suffering of our God requires us to be patient in dealing with people. Lastly, as we need to be patient in facing suffering, verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James gives us the model and example of the prophets and Job and what was common about them. They suffered and waited on God. And again, it goes back to the idea of long-suffering. They were long-suffering, waiting and trusting in God. If you read through the book of Job, you can see how much emotional and physical torment he goes through. He's a wealthy man, loses everything. You know, they might say, that's hard, but not everyone is as super wealthy as Job. And so maybe becoming bankrupt all of a sudden, we don't understand that fully. But some of his children are killed. That's terrible. And then his wife says, curse God and die. That's not so good either. And then he gets these painful sores all over his body. And they're so painful that he uses pottery shards to scrape them off. Just to get a little bit of relief. If you've ever had poison ivy, which I've had seven times, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like you just want to scrape off your skin. And when you first itch it, it just feels so good. And then it feels terrible. So that's exactly what Job went through, but much, much more. The end of verse 11 then should startle us a little bit. If you look at verse 11 of James chapter 5, it says, again, when you look at the screen, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So that last part, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, it just doesn't seem to connect with the earlier part because the book of Job is all about Job's suffering and God being sovereign over that, going through absolute misery. And yet, 
James is saying that shows God's compassion and mercy. How can that be the case? Because in the end, first of all, no one is perfectly righteous and perfectly innocent. Job is innocent and righteous, but he's not perfectly innocent and righteous. Job is a sinner. Job actually deserves ultimate death because he is a sinner. And he falls short of God's righteousness. But God blesses Job, not because Job is righteous. Notice, it's not because Job is righteous that God blesses him. It's because God is compassionate and merciful. Those characteristics of God actually causes him to be kind to us, to bless us, to give us joy and delight. And the more you trust in God's character as merciful and good and wise and sovereign and compassionate, in the midst of suffering, the more you grow in patience. Suffering is one of the key means by which we grow in patience. It really is the fork in the road of our trust in God. Either you're going to trust God or not. When you trust God, you grow in patience. You become long-suffering because you know God's character. And for every single person who I've ever encountered who has faced some sort of suffering or read about, those who trust in God, they grow leaps and bounds in their patience, in their, their own compassion, their own kindness, their own love, their own mercy. And those who suffer and like Job's wife say, curse God and die, they tend to become more bitter, more angry, more vengeful, more frightful, fearful. The reason is because, when we go to this last part, God has given us a model of patience. You see, Job was righteous, but he was not perfectly righteous. He was innocent, but he wasn't perfectly innocent. But there is one who is perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, but still suffered. We are so stuck with the book of Job, and we look at that book and we say, God, how can you allow this righteous, innocent man to suffer so much? I don't understand that. And when God at the end says, who were you? Where were you before the foundations of the world? Because God says, and you look at chapter 38 through 40 of Job, and God's whole point is, I'm God. I can do what I want. You need to trust me. And I know you don't understand everything, but let me give you all the things I take care of in this world, and you need to trust me. And we might say, but that's an insufficient answer. I don't like that answer. I want more than that. Well, God's ultimate answer to our question of that, of our questioning of how God responds in Job is, I gave a perfect son, perfectly righteous, perfectly innocent, who suffered infinitely more than Job so that you and I can have life forever in him, so that you and I can experience the coming of the Lord. I have been long-suffering. I have been abounding in steadfast love and merciful and compassionate and kind. And yet you question me. God's own son suffered grave injustices, dealt with people who abandoned him, persecuted him, mocked him, took advantage of him, and suffered terribly for it. And I'm not just talking about the Romans and the Jews. 
I'm talking about even us. Why should God go through all of this? Why should Jesus go through all of this? So that he would be a reminder to us of how patient our God is. How long-suffering he is with us. And his cross is the promise that our God is long-suffering, is patient, and he is coming. And he uses this time of waiting to show us that something far more spectacular than anything we can get in this world is going to come very soon. So we don't need to be so frightened and so fearful. Every week there seems to be bad news. But let us not forget the good news. I'm going to be speaking in Galatians. And Galatians is all about the gospel, the good news. And here's the problem with us. We just don't really believe the good news is all that good. We don't believe the gospel is good news. And so when we hear of the first inclination of bad news, the gospel, the good news is gone from our minds. And it's all about the bad news. It's our instinct to not believe that God is faithful. He is just. He is wise. Robert Murray McShane was a, a pastor in the 1800s in Scotland. He lived a very short life, only to about 29 years old. It's often thought of as that when Robert Murray McShane would go up and preach, people were almost already struck with a sense of holiness, not because he was holy, but because he just was so enamored with the holiness of God. <clears throat> this is what he says. Do not be discouraged, dearly beloved, because God bears long with you. Because he does not seem to answer your prayers. Your prayers are not lost. When the merchant sends his ships to distant shores, he does not expect them to come back richly laden in a single day. He has long patience. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Perhaps your prayers will come back like the ships of the merchant, all the more heavily laden with blessings because of the delay. This is our God. He thinks he knows so much beyond us. And so our instinct is when we pray, we want answers right now. But God has patience, and he wants to bless us. He does. But sometimes, like those merchant ships, they do not come back in a single day. Sometimes it takes a long while, but when they do, it comes with riches. And I'm not talking physical riches. I'm talking the riches that will last an eternity for your soul. I'm thankful for Job. Job reminds us of a future Job, you might say. But unlike Job, who is imperfect and not perfectly righteous, we have Jesus. We have the cross. We have the best news ever. That should get us through. From the next news, the next death, the next illness, the next struggle, the next bacteria or virus that comes, the next tragedy. I'm so thankful for the good news that never fades. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are too good for us. Your son is the means by which we have hope and life. You are long-suffering with us, oh Lord. How you can put up with someone like me 
it just, I have a hard enough time with myself, let alone with you being a God who is so merciful, so loving, compassionate. We can't even love, Lord, our dearest loved ones enough. And yet you, you gave your son. Help us to see that the gospel, the good news, is truly good. That's what keeps us going each day. It's what reminds us that you are faithful. So Lord, we pray that you would grow our patience, that we would look to you, look to our great and merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which presses us forward to trust that you are coming, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.